Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an Asian, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't, blacks don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourself up. I told that five-story building. You're setting yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economic. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 or 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money on the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor, you t- the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35 thousandths of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75 or 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you and O'Reilly. They can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisons in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate them. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, over, when they, when they over incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march, a demonstration. We're going to march. March for what? Who cares? Marching has never changed anything. If white immigrants can come to this country 50 years ago with nickels and dimes and no education and come here and pool their little nickels and dimes and no education and set up little stores, develop these stores into larger stores, develop this into an industry which creates job opportunities for whites. Since Lincoln was supposed to have freed the black man 100 years ago and today the black man, according to the government economist, has spending power of $20 billion per year. We feel that with the black man spending $20 billion a year, not setting up any businesses, not creating any industry, not creating any job opportunities for his own kind, he's not in a moral position to point the finger today at the white man 
and tell the white man that he's discriminating against him for not giving him a job in factories that he, has, he himself set up. If the black man has $20 billion, and these so-called Negro leaders are such geniuses that they can integrate white restaurants and integrate white factories and integrate, force themselves into that which the white man has set up, they should use this same ingenuity to show the black people how to pool our wealth and set up something of our own. And then we won't have to force our way into his anymore. One more thing I would like to point out concerning what he said about 125th Street. We don't waste our time on 125th Street, but you can reach more people in the street who want to change than you can in the bourgeoisie society, the bourgeoisie church, and the bourgeoisie circles. We, our program is directed toward the man in the street. So we spend our time in the street, and what we do with that man, instead of trying to change the white man in your mind and make, make you accept us, we change the mind of the black man and make him accept himself. And as soon as he accepts himself, he'll solve his own problem. He won't be trying to force himself into your factory and into your bedroom and into your kitchen.
Okay, that's a song for you, Nelson Mandela, that was released well before Nelson Mandela, the late Nelson Mandela, was released from prison. But I guess that 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 um, that song was popular when it was released <clears throat> prior to its release. Now today's podcast is titled, uh, and we're picking off from last week. Last week we we did maybe two or three podcasts on land reform in South Africa and tried to link it to what's happening in certain areas here in the United States. Um, And we're going to continue that today. Um, And we use South Africa primarily as the backdrop of what's going on over there um, right now with um, what they're um, going for over there, at least some people, not all, but the ANC and then there's uh, the Freedom Fighter Party, which is like three years old, and then there's the Black Land First Party. What they want um, is land expropriated. Now, it's happening over there already, expropriation. However, uh, the freedom fighters, the, the economic freedom fighters, that political party, because it's a political party, and the Black Land First, I'm assuming that's a political party in South Africa, along with the ANC, um, they want expropriation of land, primarily white that is owned right now by white farmers in South Africa, they want that expropriated without compensation. Now, in order to get that done legally, they have to change the constitution or amend the constitution some kind of way. So I think they voted on it, but, it, you know, they've got to go through the machinations or whatever they to get it, you know, to get it officially on the books. Now, in doing my research on land reformation in South Africa, which is like yesterday, I I just got stuck on the Zulu, the, the Zulu nation. It's and it's truly amazing. The massive amount of land transfer that happened during apartheid, which apartheid was lasted about forty six years. So they're trying to get a lot of that land back. But anyway, in the process, I came across something that happens over here in this country, and it's happening in other parts of the world. It's called C-L-A-S-S-I-C-I-D-E. Once again, classified C-L-A-S-S-I-C-I-D-E. Classified. So today's podcast is titled Classified in the Global in global land reformation. So we're going to take you to, we're going to start off with playing a clip we played last week on what classified can look like, what what are the many forms of classified. We're going to start off with South Africa, then we're going to leap over to China, and then we're going to leap back into this country with classified, what it looks like and how it can take place. While I've been in South Africa, I've heard a number of heartbreaking stories. 
but there is one that struck me on a very personal level. I met Janine on my journey through the Karoo, where I've been listening to some horrific accounts of murder, rape, and robbery. Like many other white farming families, Janine's was torn apart in one of South Africa's daily farm attacks. I sat down to hear her story firsthand. We, we are now third generation on this farm, third generation. My grandfather farmed here um, until he died of a heart attack. And then my dad inherited this portion and his brother inherited the top farm, which my dad eventually over the years bought back. So it's been in the family for more than 100 years. I grew up here, um, myself and my three siblings grew up here, went to school in Croftnet, which I'm sure you came through, and then went to study in Cape Town, and yeah, it was always our dream to come back, and it was always the intention to come back, not under these circumstances though. My dad was living alone, my mum was in an Alzheimer's home, so this is quite hard. Because we were so safe here, there was actually no handle on the back door, it was always open, and um, this security gate was right here, so my dad heard the knock on the door, opened the door, was shot in the stomach. Managed to get to the phone. Yeah. Phone my aunt. Said I've been shot in the stomach. Put the phone down, phone our neighbour. And while he was he said to Jeremy, I've been shot. And while he was on the phone to Jeremy, Jeremy heard the shots. Just kept going. And there was one shot that Rickers showed against that wall. All the time my dad's being shot. Back arms, legs, and my dad slumped over this chair, slumped forward over this chair, and he was shot in the back of the head here. Just execution style, in the back of the head. So it was eight, they found eight cartridges, but six, he was shot six times. So this is where my dad died. He was killed. Okay. I know, for what, you know, for what, he was a good man, he was an awesome man, and to shoot somebody six times, execution to start. Can I take a breather, please? You think it gets easier than it never does, unfortunately. My dad was, and Louie would back me up, and everybody would back me up, but my dad was the most loving person. He would literally give you the shirt of his back to help you. There were so many farmers, and Louie knows, that were battling, that my dad would say, yeah, use my back end to get on your feet. Do that. And he cold-bloodedly just All they took um, about 20,000 rand in the safe. They took that, helped themselves to feed and fridge, and then hit the road. Janine's story is not especially remarkable nor is it out of the ordinary. What is remarkable is her resilience. Like many of her people, Janine has returned to the farm where her father was killed to rebuild her life in the face of unspeakable horror. 
He, he's killed two people. He's destroyed two families. And he's got 15 years. With these 15 years, he can sit for six, six years and he'll come back. And he'll, he'll probably come and kill us or kill another farm because he knows how easy it is that he's got away with it. So justice hasn't been served yet. These kind of attacks are not uncommon in South Africa. In fact, the statistics show a white farming family is attacked every single day. Just getting worse and worse and worse. And they're targeting the vulnerable. You know, the 65 plus. That's who they're targeting. And it is just going to get worse. And then the farmers are going to leave. They're going to have no choice but to leave. Are the government doing anything about this? No. Nothing. The government have, have done nothing. I haven't heard from a government official. Not once. Not at all. No phone call, nothing. So, what the intention is, it remains a mystery to us. Janine and other families like hers have told me they are not convinced these brutal attacks are just random acts, but that the South African government may very well be complicit in allowing them to happen as they continue their political agenda to drive out white farmers and take their land. With overwhelming agreement, unanimous agreement, has resolved that the expropriation of land without compensation should be amongst the mechanisms available to government to give effect to land reform and redistribution. That is what is important. While watching the crime rate skyrocket against white farmers and the government's rhetoric get more radical, I can only help but wonder how much worse is this going to get in the coming years. Hey guys, this video is just one of the many stories I want to show you from my trip here in South Africa. In fact, when I get back, I plan on working on a longer form documentary about the entire trip. If you'd like to find out more about how you can support that project and other stories being told like this one, or if you'd like to find out about the people in the stories and how you can support them and the farmers of South Africa, please check out the links in the description below. And of course, a big thank you to everyone who has been supporting this trip and been super encouraging to me and this channel. It means the world to me. I'll see you next time. Okay, that's the clip we played from last week on what's happening in South Africa right now when it comes to, I, I guess you can, vigilante um, attacking white farmers. <clears throat> uh, but they are attempting to, uh, to, to change the Constitution over there for uh, expropriation of land, primarily for white farmers without compensation. Now, it's not isolated to South Africa. It's a global phenomenon. It's not new, and it it, like so we want to bring it all back into the United States because it's happening here too. 
Uh, today's podcast, once again, is titled Classicide. That's spelled C-L-A-S-S-I-C-I-D-E. Classicide Global Land Reformation. Now, going from Wikipedia, let me give you what they say on this word classicide. Classicide is the deliberate and systematic destruction in whole or in part of a social class through persecution and violence. The term classicide was termed by sociologist Michael Mann uh, as a term that is similar but distinct from the term genocide. Examples include Joseph Stalin's mass killing of the uh, affluent middle-class Pleasants, Kulaks, um, who were identified as class enemies by the Soviet Union. Similar Similar class side examples have been committed by China during the Great Leap Forward by North Vietnam uh, as in part of land reform in Khmer Rouge in the uh, regime in Cambodia. The definition is classified as a term first used by Frederick Schwartz uh, in his book, The Three Phases of Revolution. It was later used by Michael Mann uh, as a well-defined term. Classified has been used by sociologists to describe a unique form of genocide that pertains to the uh, alienation of a class through murder or displacement. I'm also putting it through the legal system. Um, commonly used to describe the ideals of Karl Marx and the destruction of the upper class um, to form a more equal working class. All right. I'm going to take you over. I'm going to play some uh, a clip here from uh, what what happened in China, starting with the Great Leap under Mao Zedong. Which, and here's what they did with the Great Leap. They actually went out and targeted landlords and either killed them. I mean, well, let me play, let me play the play. first thing you ought to know about the Great Leap Forward, a series of policies aimed at industrializing communist China between 1958 and 1961, is that the term Great Leap Forward is actually a terrible name for what happened. It was, for all intents and purposes, a gigantic step backwards. So what was the program? Why did Mao Zedong launch the campaign? What were its terrible consequences on the Chinese population? Well, let's take a look. The year is 1958. China's revolutionary chairman, Mao Zedong, unveils a new policy at the Communist Party conference in Nanjing. He calls it the Great Leap Forward. Mao's goal was that China should, by the year 1973, have a new, industrialized, centrally planned economy that would rival or surpass its Western rivals. To understand what exactly the Great Leap Forward was, and exactly what it aimed to do, there are two terms of particular significance that we should take note of collectivization and industrialization. First, collectivization. Prior to 1949, when the communists came into power in China, Chinese peasants, the vast bulk of the population, were used to the private ownership of small bits of land. Mao was ideologically opposed to this. He was a hardline communist after all. 
and sought to achieve his goals by forcing the peasants and farmers into thousands of people's communes. This was collectivization, a situation in which farmers did not own individual farms, but where all such land was amalgamated into common ownership, hence communism, or in reality, the direct ownership of state. This system was a staple of communist regimes, and as we'll see in China, one that had disastrous consequences. Secondly, industrialization. Mao knew that if China's economy was to develop, it simply had to industrialize. In 1958, China's economy was agrarian, that is, based almost entirely on agriculture and peasant farming. This put it significantly behind its rival Western powers. The Industrial Revolution, for instance, had transformed many European economies from around 1760 to 1840 from their agrarian roots, with the introduction of heavy and automated machinery. Mao wanted to accomplish the same 80-year process with a population several times larger than that of Britain over a period of just 15 years. So, in an attempt to rapidly industrialize China's economy and develop its gigantic agrarian populace into commune-based districts, in 1958, the Great Leap Forward began. By the end of this first year, an absolutely massive 750 million people were forced into some 25,000 such communes across China. Peasant life was fantastically disrupted as private ownership was completely abolished. Farm workers, who had no previous expertise in industrial work, were forced to start undertaking industrial-level projects. The Communist Party set targets, often highly unrealistic, for production of steel and other necessities that would be produced inside the communes. The communes themselves became so large, some with over 40,000 people, that they could not effectively be managed or run by the local Communist Party officials. In the first year, the Great Leap Forward appeared to make modest gains in industrial output and the agricultural sector had a relatively good harvest. But as the winter of 1959 approached, it was clear that something had gone horribly wrong. Reports of widespread famine, collapsing industrial and agricultural output, and deep discontent among the peasantry emerged all across China. The Great Leap Forward resulted in one of the most disastrous famines of all time, claiming the lives of between 36 and 45 million people. The failure of the policy was, in many ways, the perfect storm. Firstly, massive numbers of farmers went from producing food to producing steel, in which they had no experience, causing both a collapse in output and substandard steel often made in backyard furnaces. Secondly, the physical capacity of peasants was decimated by a huge emphasis on producing grain, destroying their capability of procuring food. Thirdly, during the years Mao forced the Great Leap Forward on its population, China suffered particularly bad droughts, typhoons, and flooding on the Yellow River, exacerbating what would become known as the Great Chinese Famine. In short, the Great Leap Forward was one of the largest man-made catastrophes in human history. Postscript. Much of China suffered horrendously in the Great Leap Forward, so much so that the policies were largely cancelled by 1961. The famine was so enormous that peasants often turned it to cannibalism in a desperate bid to save themselves, and yet people literally starved outside warehouses full of grain. Officials were so obsessed with reaching production targets that in some cases they did not give away any of the produce to starving farmers. In most areas, officials greatly overstated the size of the harvests in order to avoid the appearance of failure. With tens of millions dead in just three years, Mao Zedong's position in the Communist Party was damaged greatly. Criticized at party meetings and sidelined within its halls of power, he resigned as head of state in 1959, replaced by the more moderate Liu Shaoqi. Mao's marginalization of the party during the early 1960s led him to attempt to reintroduce his style of communism within the government and China at large. He spent much time in this period developing an idea of continuous revolution, something that would set the stage for yet another nationwide disaster, the Cultural Revolution. But that is a story for another time. 
Hey everybody, thanks for watching this video. I hope you enjoyed it. If you would be so kind as to click that little red button that says subscribe, I would be eternally grateful. See you next time. As the revolutionary program began, the peasants were the first to benefit. They were granted the land reform they'd wanted for so long. It was the party's plan that they should seem to make the change themselves. Speak bitterness meetings were held in which the landlords and others linked to the defeated nationalists were confronted and denounced by the peasants. We were told to get together and ask the landlords to return land to us. We stated how much they should return and how they should return it. There was a denunciation meeting every day. Local party secretary, Lua Shifa, helped whip up feeling in his village. The first thing we had to do was to bring down the landlords. What we did was persuade the tenant farmers to denounce them. At the public meeting, they would explain how they couldn't afford to pay back the rent every year, or how they had to take out high-interest loans to pay it off. People around the stage sympathized with the poor peasant stories, and they'd weep. Hundreds of thousands were killed. Okay, um, continuing on with uh, classicide, and we're going to link that over here in the United States. Um, and I'll give some examples here in, in a minute. But uh, now you can get this from uh, Wikipedia also, because I'm going to read it from Wikipedia. Uh, it's under Mass Killings of Landlords under Mao Zedong. Mass Killings of Landlords Under Mao Zedong. And once again, today's podcast is titled Classicide, Global Land Reformation. We've given some examples from South Africa. We just gave uh, a couple from uh, China. And we're going to link it back to what it looks like here in the United States. Uh, but let me uh, go give you uh, more information here on mass killings of landlords under Mao Zedong. Uh, part of the Mao Zedong land reform during the late phase of the Chinese Civil War in, early People's Republic, uh, in the early People's Republic of China was a campaign of mass killing of landlords. 
under the uh, under um, in order to read this to pleasant. I mean, uh, pleasant, pleasant. <coughs> excuse me, pleasant. I mean, not pleasant, but peasant class of landless workers. Um, it resulted in millions of deaths. Those uh, uh, those killed were targeted on the basis of class rather than ethnicity. Let me read that part again. Those killed were targeted on the basis of class rather than ethnicity. Let me link that sentence back here to the United States. Back when lynching in the United States was at an all-time high, most people looking at, at it as white people lynching black people. But if you read the, if you read the, um, the teachings of what Ida B. Wells wrote and some other people, but I got the most out of Ida B. Wells. When it comes, well, here's who were lynched. Although we would probably have more African Americans. But African Americans, Jewish, and Italian, and some Mexicans. The common denominator with those ethnicities wasn't because they weren't white. The, most of the people that were lynched, not all, but most of the people that were lynched were prominent or wealthy black folks, Italian folks, or Jewish folks. All those other ethnicities I might have named. Uh, one of the early guests, I like real one of its miles, uh, and I'm going to try to get her back on here, was a, a descendant. Uh, I forgot the guy's name. He's, he's in the archives because we've got over a thousand podcasts in this miles now. Her great grandfather owned like 600 acres of land and had a business uh, or had businesses on that 600 acres and he had a school on the 600 acres as well. He was a very prosperous black man. And one day, because he usually went into town with backup. But one day he went into town, I guess, overconfident with no backup. They caught him and killed him, then went back to the 600 acres and told his family, if you don't get out of town by sundown, the same thing's going to happen to you. And there's a whole, we, and we'll do soon, a whole series of podcasts on sundown towns. So many people who got lynched, uh, African Americans, whoever, not all of them were primarily wealthy or prominent black folk. I also mentioned before in this podcast, it just wasn't the streets of black folks. The Salem witch trials. That was primarily white folks getting demonized. And that, that's what you heard on this, the, the last clip I played. People or the people that are angling to get your land. Because the government is just made of people. And they use government as a tool to get it. But Salem Witch Trials, basically, prominent white folk that had land that somebody wanted to get, 
demonize the person as a witch or a warlock back then it worked. And that's how they got to win. Um, same thing works today. Um, matter of fact, we, we go back to sticking in this country, uh, uh, 1921, I believe. Um, Black Wall Street. I look at Black Wall Street as a classic textbook example of classicide. Most people call it a race riot. And it, it, it looked like that. But what was it? It was lower class on the socioeconomic scale, working class folk that happened to be white. And it went into, and it was organized too, went into a prosperous black neighborhood. Because that's what black, I mean, Black Wall Street was, was a neighborhood in the north part of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And they, they went in and they would loot the houses first. Loot the house, take dresses, furniture, knickknacks, bric-a-brac, whatever, and then raise the block and then go on to the next block. But that was a that was a class a classified situation. That's what I mean. All right. In 2018, one of the ways they can do it is through housing court. We've had guests here. Uh, there's a, a documentary that the late Francis Clarence Wells returned. I can't think of it because I've had the guests on there like three times at least. Um, ah, I'll, I'll remember it sooner or later. But they can do it through a housing court situation. And typically, they, they and I'll name two, matter of fact, um, DC, which used to be called Chocolate City. Is not Chocolate City no more. They typically, just like with the Great Leap and other and in South Africa, some politician or some agitator gets a poor person jacked up, and they they can take your house. Now, some will go to the extent of physical violence, as you heard in South Africa. This podcast, it's my house was born out of that. I had a house student that somebody told her in government or somewhere in government that, you know what, you can actually take this dude's house. I have the email for it. It's a five-year-old email, but I still got it. She actually thought she could take my house using the government. <clears throat> anyway, land reforms can take place in many ways. I'm going to play another clip from um, the Great Lake on China's uh, land reform, and then we'll open it up to um, calls if anybody's got any comments or questions. Gladys Tobo lives alone and struggles to support herself. She'd hoped that when apartheid ended in South Africa, life would be different, that the African National Congress would make good on its promise to make land available for people like her. She's 75 years old and still waiting. I'm a person, I'm still alive. <coughs> Sorry. You are a person who's still alive, but you've got nothing on the world. You're just a person. You will die like a dog. Millions of people across the country illegally occupy council land, and they are sometimes evicted. 
Land reform is controversial. Many government officials say more than 80% of good agricultural land is still in the hands of white farmers. And many poor black South Africans are getting frustrated. They want the government to speed up land reform in urban and rural areas. So it will come to a boiling point whereby the, the egg has to explode, you know. And war, uh, I, I won't call it war in such, you know, but anarchy can take over. The government had planned to buy land from white farmers and give it to landless blacks. But President Jacob Zuma says the so-called willing buyer, willing seller program isn't working. White commercial farmers who are willing to sell say they aren't being offered a fair price. They blame the slow pace of land reform on government corruption and feel not enough of new landowners know how to farm commercially. Farmers are uncertain about the future. 2013 is the centenary of South Africa's Natives Land Act, which dispossessed black families of their land to make way for whites. We, we are afraid that in the emotional upheaval around that, land invasions might, might take place. We are in a particularly unstable time in our history in South Africa. Land reform is on the agenda at the ANC elective conference. Gladys Torbo and many others are waiting to see if politicians will finally keep their promises. Harumitasa, Al Jazeera, Johannesburg. Now, before I open up the phone lines, there's one clip I wanted to play. Uh, there's a central figure in South Africa, uh, Julius uh, Malema, and he's um, anti-capitalist. Very charismatic guy, um, and he he's one of the, the primary people leading the charge of um, expropriation without compensation. Now, what he wants, political party, which is the Economic Freedom Party, you can read about them on land. I'm trying to find a clip about him right now. Is he he wants the government? to take over the land. Let's, let's listen to him. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Speaker, and uh, the leadership of the EFF. This is a motion that seeks to unite black people in South Africa. And ordinarily, if leadership was provided, we shouldn't be having this debate because the land should have been returned into the hands of the rightful owners. We all know that uh, the Dutch gangsters arrived here and took our land by force. And uh, the struggle has since been about the return of the land into the hands of rightful owners. Yet those who went to negotiate on behalf of our people during the negotiations sold out this fundamental principle which constituted the struggle against colonialism. So those who claim to be radical enough and who want radical change today should actually be in the forefront of agreeing that this constitution must be changed to make it possible for our people to own the land. It can't be correct that the less than 10% of the population owns almost more than 75% of the land. And those people who own the land happen to be 
in an acceptable language private uh, people like individuals, trusts, and companies. But when you search deep as to who are these people, these are white people who are still owning our land. We remain a conquered nation even when we claim to have democracy. We remain a conquered nation because white monopoly capital still owns the means of production and at the center of that is the land question. The dominance of white people, it cannot go away, particularly white supremacy for as long as land is not returned into the hands of the people. We are the only country where we say revolution has taken place, yet those who were oppressing us have not lost anything after the revolution. We remain as we were even before 1994. So we are saying that black people, all of us, we need to unite and amend the constitution so that we can expropriate land without compensation. There is no white person who will understand that clarion call because they don't know the pain of being landless. Only those who have gone through a passage of being landless will appreciate where we come from on the issue of the land. The issue of the land cannot be a campaigning issue. The issue of the land cannot be a rhetorical question. The issue of the land should be an issue of commitment. Honorable members, we have taken an oath here. And when we take an oath, we are simply saying we are loyal to the land. But how can we be loyal to the land which is in the hands of private individuals? We must be loyal to the land that belongs to us. Majority of our people say South Africa belongs to them, yet they do not have proof to show that indeed South Africa belongs to them, because many of them do not even know how a title deed looks like. Many generations died without even knowing how a title deed looks like. It is only through the expropriation of land without compensation that our people will be the rightful owners of this country. We cannot keep on saying South Africa belongs to all who live in it, yet we have nothing to show. Today the ANC should come with the EFF, there is 6% available, we give it to you without no condition to, uh, to amend the constitution and take the land. If you don't agree with us today, it means you are disagreeing with Honorable Ayanda Drodlo. If you don't agree with us today, it means you don't, you don't agree with your outgoing president on the issue of expropriation of land without compensation. Even the Minister of Land, this is a matter that can unite black people. This is a matter that all of us should stand together and isolate white monopoly capital. This is a matter that can say to us, this is a genuine call which we as black people can identify with. So the ANC, 6% Shiona, Relefayona, Arjen Lefase, Rilimeng, Arjen Lefase, Rare di Feme, Arjen Lefase, Refebatbarna, Babele Marae, Babele, a place to call home.
Honorable Nzimande, we have already started taking the land. If you vote against this, it's a waste of time. We are already giving our people the land, and we are not ashamed of that. People of South Africa, where you see a beautiful land, take it, it belongs to you. Now that's a dangerous statement that he just made. Now I'm all for people getting their land back in, in, this, in the case of apartheid. Apartheid, I think, lasted 46 years. I'm all for the people who lost land due to apartheid. I'm a thousand percent because I'm all for them getting their land back. Um, I don't like the idea of the government owning the land. That's what he's proposing. The government owns the land. And then if you take a look at what happened in uh, Uganda under Idi Amin and uh, Zimbabwe, um, where the cronies got the land and the rightful owners didn't get the land. And then there's a whole bunch of people, typically poor folk, that these politicians hang that carrot out. That's why I played the, the land reform under China, under Mao Zedong. They hold this carrot out, which he just, he just put out a big carrot. If you see a piece of land, take That's what happened to me. You have people right now. The video's on YouTube. The video's on YouTube. Um Man, so I keep up, I keep up. We're gonna to go to the phone lines in the moment. I'm gonna play a video. I mean, uh, not a video, audio of what that looks like, American style. Now, this happened on Detroit's West Side, and police are calling this a home invasion. But some people are seeing it a little differently. The victim did not want to talk on camera, but a few family members of the suspects did. Last night, the lady of this house came home to one hell of a surprise. There was one heck of a party in her pad, but she never got the invite. Three men had helped themselves to all of her gin and her Seagram's Happy Juice. And these cats went crazy. They cooked up all her food, crab legs, shrimp. They even had a bird in the oven. Can you believe it? And while they were fixing their feast, they were high as a kite on the chronic. Bold, huh? She screamed. They ran out the house. Then the lady called the law. According to the police report, the victim says her house was a hot mess. A bunch of her stuff was stolen, including some very sentimental things. And the dudes dining at her dining room table were fellas with familiar faces. She told detectives two of them live right next door. Now that's worse than a nosy neighbor. Your brothers were in there. Yeah, one of them. But sis here says it's not his fault. He was just a guest. Somebody was squatting in, the, in that house. The guy that was in there, he was squatting already, so he was inviting people over as if he was living there. If you're a homeowner, renting a property or whatever, you don't leave your home abandoned for three, four months. Well, the woman tells Fox 2, she was there last Tuesday, and everything was intact. This is Detroit, Michigan. This is the hungry capital of the world, and we will come in there and squat in your house if you're not home. It was like a chill spot. Wait, 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 what? I mean, this is, if you squat in the house, you... Somebody invites you over to smoke some weed, go, go, we right next door. I don't know what you think about all this right now, but these people believe she's to blame, and she should have known better than to ever, ever leave her house alone for too long. Stay on your property for your copper come up missing. Now, that gentleman says he would never, ever do anything like that, but other people do. 
two guys were arrested last night, but the other guy, he ran before the police got there. You know, the saddest thing about all this is you should be able to leave your house as long as you want to, and everybody should just leave it alone. By the way, that lady is looking for another place to live. I'm Andrea Isom on The Edge. All right, you want to live in a beautiful home, but how about this? No rent, no mortgage. Well, no problem. That seems to be the case for a Mount Juliet man living in a half-million-dollar home without paying a dime. So how can someone get away with being a squatter? News Channel 5 investigative reporter Ben Hall went to find out. We want to talk to you about why you're in this house. I want to talk to you about getting out of here. How's that? Does that work with you? Get that out of my face. Don't, don't touch the camera. Jude Pisky didn't want to talk about why he's been squatting in this Mount Juliet home for more than two years. The bank you don't says, have a I don't give a bank says you don't have a right to You know be. what I got to say? How, when did you move in? No matter. None of your business. Our investigation found that Pisky moved into the home more than two years ago, despite having no legal claim to the property. The banks that had foreclosed on the previous owners essentially forgot about it, allowing it to sit empty for years. This video home tour shows what the luxury log cabin used to look like. Attempts to sell it fell apart because of confusion among banks after the housing crisis. It sat empty for a while before we tried to buy it. Ron and Dina Woodard fell in love with the home back in 2014 and tried to buy it at auction. I knew where all of my furniture was going to be. I mean, it was just, I just, you know, it was ours. You know, we were, and the kids, the kids were just as excited about it as we were. And their high bid was accepted. But days before they were set to close, the bank pulled the plug on the deal. There was no real explanation of, uh, of why. They were just kind of like, oh, we pulled the listing. Sorry. Yeah. In late 2012, J.P. Morgan Chase foreclosed on the home, then sold it to Bank of New York Mellon as trustees for investors for a mortgage-backed security. Control over the home has since passed from Countrywide Financial to Bank of America, and finally to NationStar. Meanwhile, it is sat empty. We couldn't get in touch with anybody that would claim any responsibility for the maintenance or ownership or anything else at that point. City Commissioner Ray Justice contacted more than one bank about the abandoned home, but they didn't seem to care. I got no response, zero response. It was about that time Jude Piskey, his friends, and family suddenly appeared at the house. This is probably one of the most bizarre things I've ever dealt with. Police were first called to the home in April of 2015 for a domestic dispute involving Pisky and his ex-wife. In September, police discovered a stolen vehicle at the property. The gentleman had no connection to the owners of the property and that we could find. Pisky actually paid the back property taxes on the home to keep Wilson County from seizing it in 2015. We found Pisky has a history of codes violations. In 2008, he illegally moved the home to a piece of land near Hermitage, forcing Davidson County officials to condemn the home. This is just nuts. Justice says he fields weekly complaints from his constituents about the number of cars and junk being stored at the log cabin. Are you gaming the system? No, man, I'm running for Congress. Nation Star Bank finally sent us a statement saying, we greatly appreciate that you brought this to our attention, and went on to say, we are moving quickly to evict the home of its current residents so the home can be prepared for sale. All I can do is applaud Channel 5 News 
thank you for you know, for actually going an extra mile and help, helping us get this taken care of. But as we discovered, getting Pisky to leave may not be easy. This is not your property. The bank says you have no right to be here. As Pisky walked to his truck, we didn't realize what was about to happen. Now, we were not hurt by all that, but police arrested Pisky and charged him with aggravated assault. He bonded out and still lives in the house. We'll keep watching to see if the bank actually gets him out of the home. That's land reform American style, the last two clips we played. And we, so it's classified, which today's podcast is how to classify global land reformation. You can't put a color on it other than green or green. Now, tomorrow, we're going to do a case study on classified. Uh, what we're going to do, and we'll give you the information tomorrow, but we're going to do a case study on the uh, the late Francis Crest Wellsing. I spoke to uh, Dr. Wellsing um, about a couple of years, about a couple of years before she passed away. And um, she lived in Washington, D.C., on the Gold Coast in Washington, D.C., a very affluent neighborhood. Her neighborhood, her block, her block, and specifically her block, where the house was valued at, the tax assessment was valued then at 500000 and up. And that was then. I don't know what they are now. But $500,000 and up. How can a, 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 a neighborhood that has houses worth a half million or more get gentrified? Tomorrow, we're going to show you what land reformation looks like American style. All right, it's, it's not as dramatic as the Great Leap in China or what's going on in South Africa right now as far as white farmland or prime white farmland. Um, and we'll have some other guests on here that, that are from South Africa, that are in South Africa, that have been to South Africa, and they'll, they'll give you a different story of black folk that live in South Africa, how they're prospering, particularly black farmers. So we'll, we'll give you a, a, a balanced picture. In any event, but tomorrow we're, we're, we're going to follow what happened to Francis, the late Francis Quest Weldon, what happened to her neighborhood. And I think that distress just, that's why I think she passed, I, I would say prematurely, because her block on the Gold Coast in Washington, D.C., was consumed by what I would call American style of expropriation. It's expropriation, basically. In 60 minutes is a piece on this, but they didn't call it that. They put it under the guise of gentrification, which I guess you could. Expropriation is basically you take from one private entity and give it to another. 
That's what happens with a lot of gentrification today. And in the case of Francis Cress Wellesley, and we're, tomorrow we'll give you the documentation that you can follow along with us how they did it, how they consumed her block bit by bit using the government. It wasn't the government that did it, but if you know how to use the government, which are basically civic assets that are available to everybody, and that's the part of civil rights that more a lot of people don't talk about. You know, what are your civic assets and how to use them? Unfortunately, well, I'm not going to say that. I'll, I'll, I'll hold that comment tomorrow. Anyway, any comments here before we go off? 619-768-2945 is our number. And we'll go to area code 314. Your mic is open. Well, L.A., this is Pianchi. Good how are you? You know, I'm really happy that the, not only did you play clips of whites in their disgust, but also blacks in their jubilee. And I think too often, as the run-of-the-mill news media go, and of course we know how it reports, it reports on the whites losing their land. But you know, in Africa, no one owns the land. And... <clears throat> If a chief sells you land, he's done something wrong, which he should not have done, no matter how far back. Land belongs to the people. And the people at those times when those agreements was put in place, it was South Africa. It was blacks. There were no Indians there. There were no whites, Europeans, Dutch, so on, so on, so on. And they remembered it. And you know, it's a funny thing that you may mention on these land graphs, because even the history of the United States has the same involvement, especially out on the east, where you had uh, land barons, and then you had others who came in and squatted on those lands. They made improvements in agriculture and whatever else, and then they took possession of the land, uh, sort of, of aggressive possession, which you can still implement today. And one key component that was that was uh, a major player in their ability to do that, and it's so eloquently uh, documented in a book called The History of Capitalism by Hernando Sotos, I believe his name is, was the gun. The gun played a big part because those squatters had to protect themselves. Once they took possession of the land, oh. those land burners tried to take it back. You're right. The, the gun played, if you take the gun out of the equation, the history of mankind, maps and all that would be, wouldn't be the same as we are today. No, I would Now, one critical thing, though. We hear a lot of blacks in America who always affiliate themselves with Africa, which is all right. But I always ask them to prove it. And with South Africa going through the process of reappropriating the land, then it has to be successful. It has to be productive. It can't, the people will not settle for anything less than what they have now, whatever they're deriving. They want more. So those lands that's being reappropriated, that needs to be a success in turning them into productive operation. And this is an opportunity for those blacks 
that say they are pro-African to make a difference and help make a difference. And you know another thing real quick. I noticed Nigerians that come to this country. They may first start off, and I'm going to give you an example, a real live example, in St. Louis with a business. If that business doesn't do well in St. Louis, if the market is not conducive for them to get a foothold, guess what they do, L.A.? They move to another town. They move to another town just like at the drop of a hat and will attempt to do what they wasn't able to do in their previous town. And many times they're successful, like moving to Houston, for instance. So those who are complaining about what they can't do here, what the white man won't let them do, well, follow the lead of your Nigerians that look like you and uh, see what you can do in South Africa. And, you know, in Ghana, you had the stool in the Volta region uh, do a land appropriation for returning African-Americans, those that wanted to return. And I believe it was like 500 hectares. But uh, that uh, nobody's taking advantage of it to the greatest extent. Anyway, man, I'll let you go on with your program. All right, thanks, Mike. Thanks for those comments. I, I particularly like the, the point um, where you made uh, where in this a source of a lot of confusion is some of these chiefs way back when sold land to the Dutch or whoever. That as a matter of fact, let me bring an example here in the United States, and I'll use my family. My family in, in Louisiana has got somewhere out in Hummer, Louisiana. The family's got like 88 acres of land. It's been in the family for like over 100 years. But somewhere in the family tree, somebody sold um, whatever to somebody, and their name's on it, you know, on the deed. So if that property's ever developed or whatever, you know, you got to deal with this entity that nobody, in at least the blood family, knows about. Well, that same thing happened in South Africa. You, you, like you said, you had chiefs that during whatever era exchanged um, land for guns, rum, whiskey, what have you. That's where, you know, I, I don't know where, you know where they're going to start at with this. How far are they going to go back? Are they going to go back to apartheid, or are they going to go back beyond that? Because the first clip I played here today, the lady and her father got killed on his land. The property's been in the family for over 100 years, that particular farm. Now, part, so they had that pre-apartheid, but it's, um, it's like, say, if you transfer that story over here. You do have, like, even today it's called, and we've done some podcasts and we'll do more on it, it's called Inheritance Hijacking. With somebody in your family, matter of fact, I had a friend of mine on here, his brother um, was with his half-brother. He got control of the house, got got their mother to sign a power of attorney and he didn't know his, my friend, he didn't know his wife. He's been on this podcast a couple of times. Long story short, by him not knowing his rights, that's why one of my models on the show, if you don't know your rights, you don't have any, 
He moved out of the house. His brother basically hijacked the house, his inheritance, and sold the house, made six a, six, a free and clear house, mind you, because his father had paid. Made a $600,000 profit on a free and clear house and didn't give his brother not one penny. That goes on every day. Now, he's not trying to contest, you know, that it's, it's done, but let's transfer this back to South Africa or any other place. It, you know, stuff happens. 410 area code, your mic is open. Good morning, Brother L.A. How you doing? Fine, fine. And uh, I would like to say, oh, well, I got a remedy for you before you get off the air that's sure to work for you. Okay. But but, uh, what happened is um, last week I gave you a statistic, and I wasn't able to give you the numbers. But if you got time, I'd like to give you the numbers regarding South Africa and uh, it said that 39,966 families, well, they, they rounded it off to 40,000 families on 79% of the prop, the land in Africa, South Africa. The, the, the farm, you're talking about the farmland or land in general? Including farmland and, 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 and whatever land you can, you can, uh, Conjure up woodland, open ranges, what have you. Okay. And it said of, of those, it said that uh, it was broken down this way, and I'll give it to you. Let's see. It said only 2.9% of the land was owned by blacks. That's farmland and whatever land you want to include. And okay. it broke it down further. To tell you that um, my computer's jumping around, but anyway, let me let me shorten this up so you so you can go because I know you're suffering from a cold. And it broke it down to who owned the land. And the thing is, it said that uh, only thirty nine point nine six six were identified as active at the time of the census. This was taken by the government. The majority of okay. units was 33,249 owned by individuals, with 2,167, uh, 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 I guess, units belonging to companies, 2,259 to closed corporations, and 874 units described as family-owned. And the thing is, it also went and gave the size of, of farms. Now, we think of farms here as just, you know, small little plots of maybe 200, maybe 1,000 acres. And they broke it down into hectares. I guess the hectares, however how you pronounce it. Yeah, yeah and most people globally go by hectares. A hectare, a hectare is about twice the size of an acre. Yeah, about two acres. Yeah, you're right. That's what that's what it, that's what it says. It's, uh, one hectare equals two acres, and what right. they said was, and you can look this up on online, you know, because the thing is, you know, a lot of people will come up and automatically disagree with you. But if you want to go online, you can go in and look at it. And I think it said that um, 
It ranged anywhere the size. It says the size of the farms ranged anywhere from 427 hectares to 5,799 hectares in size. That's Mm. the average size of the farms and the range of them. So that's a lot of land. And Zuma wants to come in and cap it off at 12,000 hectares for these uh, land barons. And they're disputing that. And the thing is, what 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 you said earlier, and I think Brother Pianchi um, alluded to it, and you said it, and it was in your podcast about class society. I don't see how uh, is his name Lalima, ever what his name is. Oh yeah, Joe uh, Julius Lalima. Yeah, and look, I found out that he belonged to the youth, uh, the ANC youth. Uh, part he, of the was, youth part he, of the he was ANC. elected. He was elected some years ago to the ANC youth division, but but three years ago he started his own political party, the Economic Freedom Fighters. That's what he's got now. Exactly. Well, what happened is, you know, uh, who was in charge of that youth uh, part of the ANC? That was um, Winnie Mandela. And the thing yeah, is, man. I don't know where he. I don't know where he got his, uh, you know, his philosophy from, but here's the thing. Like I told you uh, last week, there's no way in the world, because the white African, South African farmers said, that, hey, they're going to fight this thing. There's right. no way in the world you're going to be able to get this thing peacefully. And like Brother Pianchi said, you know, the gun plays a major part in this thing. Sure and does. You, you played the clip that, in order for to get the land barons to give up that land to the peasants in China, they had to actually go in and kill those guys. And right. the thing is, um, you know and I know the land grab here in, uh, and I looked this up yesterday, the land grab in America uh, where all the blacks was uh, forced off their land, it was violence. And right. the thing is, like well, I that, told you the other day, yeah, that's why I brought up the thing about lynching. Most of, not all, but most of the people, particularly black folks, that got lynched were wealthy black people. That's why my and you've heard it before, Lee. Uh, my my take on the Emmett Till thing: nobody talks about what happened to his uncle's land because after he after the trial was over, he walked away from twenty five acres of land with a cash crop of cotton on it. But nobody talks yeah. about that aspect of it. No, and the thing is, uh, I, I looked at a bunch of articles yesterday, um, and it, it, there's a whole bunch of articles that list all of the uh, atrocities committed against black people in the loss of their land. It goes on and on and on, and acres and everything else. And the thing is, whenever you play a clip like you played before where this lady was talking about, hey, my father got killed execution style and everything, like I told you last week, they're already starting the propaganda. Hey, look, you know, we're going to have to go in and save those white farmers because once it starts, they're going to have to protect South Africa because of its mineral rights and everything else. And the thing is, we black folk never say, how many Africans were killed in the stealing of that land. And That's I also true. looked up the, the Dutch East East Indian Corporation was the one that started this thing when they were able to set up a fort there at Cape Good Hope. And they You're started right. expanding on the land. 
But with that being the case, hey, uh, the thing is, it's going to have to be settled. It's in the, the, you can't settle it with politics because politics didn't get that land. And the thing is, uh, Lalima, and what his name is, all he's doing is just like our civil rights leaders used to do. He's talking without a plan because I was in the Army. When you, Whenever you get ready to start an operation, the first thing you do is take out a map and you zero in on what you want to do. You go in and you set up your assets to take over what you want to take up. And the thing is, like Brother Pleasant said last week, you have to have a vested interest. If people don't have right. interest in, in in getting something and profiting from it, you'll never get the support that you need to do what you need to do what you need to do to take over your goals or complete your goals. And I'm gonna end on this: uh, what, you, what you need to do to get rid of that cold, and it works for me. Is to get you go and find you some white lightning or some stump hole as we call it. Get you some rock candy. Mix it with honey, and what you do is you take away the rock candy and the honey, and you just drink the stump hole, and that should get rid of your your cold. Okay, well you're the third person that mentioned honey over the last two or three days, so. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. yeah, but yeah, but forget about the rock candy and the honey, and just drink the stump hole, and when you wake up, your cold will be gone. All right, I'll I'll give well, I'll, I'll I'll get that today, and hopefully I'll be home by tomorrow. Okay, thank you for the comment and, look, and uh, it, it, with good input. Yeah, you were saying. Yeah, see, and if that don't work for you, I'll say a prayer for you, and if I will close oh. to you, I'd lay hands on you. <laughs> okay, all right then. Thanks everybody for that, and everybody have a good rest of the day. <laughs>